Hi everyone, welcome back to the Logical Bible Study Podcast. We're continuing to look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, as we have been in the last few days, and as always, we want to take a look at the text from today, and then we dive into looking at an exegesis of the literal sense of that text. Today's passage is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. It's a bit of a longer one. This is the Road to Emmaus story. Two of the disciples of Jesus were on their way to a village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking together about all that had happened. Now, as they talked this over, Jesus himself came up and walked by their side, but something prevented them from recognizing him. He said to them, what matters are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped short, their faces downcast. Then one of them, called Cleopas, answered him, You must be the only person staying in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have been happening there these last few days. What things? he asked. All about Jesus of Nazareth, they answered, who proved he was a great prophet by the things he said and did in the sight of God and of the whole people, and how our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and had him crucified. Our own hope had been that he would be the one to set Israel free. And this is not all. Two whole days have gone by since it all happened, and some women from our group have astounded us. They went to the tomb in the early morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back to tell us that they had seen a vision of angels, who declared that he was alive. Some of our friends went to the tomb and found everything exactly as the women had reported, But of him, they saw nothing. Then he said to them, You foolish men, so slow to believe the full message of the prophets. Was it not ordained that the Christ should suffer and so enter into his glory? Then, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he explained to them the passages through the scriptures that were about himself. When they drew near to the village to which they were going, He made as if to go on, but they pressed him to stay with them. It is nearly evening, they said, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now while he was with them at table, he took the bread and said the blessing. Then he broke it and handed it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he had vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? They set out that instant and returned to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven assembled together with their companions, who said to them, Yes, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told their story of what had happened on the road and how they had recognized him at the breaking of the bread. So many of you will be familiar with the Road to Emmaus story. It's often used as part of uh, catechesis and religious education as a model of what we're trying to do when we teach people the scriptures, is we want to un- like help them open their eyes to see things they hadn't seen before. So what's the context here? It's Easter Sunday. It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. Already in the morning on this day, the women have seen the vision of angels at the tomb, And they've run back to tell the apostles and the other disciples who were in Jerusalem. 
we know from earlier on that most of the disciples do not believe them. Though Peter and the beloved disciples, they do, they go and check it out for themselves, but most of the disciples don't believe that Jesus is resurrected. So now it's probably early afternoon on Easter Sunday at this point, and we see two of the disciples of Jesus. Now, these are not part of the 11 apostles, but the disciples, so the broader group of his followers. So these two people, two disciples, they were in the room when the women came in and claimed that the tomb was empty, but they did not believe the women either. So they're on the way to a village called Emmaus, and our translation says that is seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, there's some debate about uh, how far away it is, because some translations have this as what is basically 18 miles. Um, Some manuscripts have it as 18 miles, some have it as 7 miles. We know from 1 Maccabees, according to 1 Maccabees, there is a village called Emmaus, which is 18 miles from Jerusalem. So, probably the right translation is 18 miles. And that means today... The village we've identified it with today is what's called Nicopolis. So you can go to Nicopolis today and see what we think are the ruins of Emmaus. So it's 18 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. This is probably their hometown. The disciples are probably walking there. They're going home from Jerusalem. If it's 18 miles, then this is certainly a few hours worth of walking to get there. So they're on their road. They're talking together about all that happened. And we later get a summary of what all those things are. As they talk this over, so they're on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus himself came up and walked by their side. So he sort of appears out of nowhere, but it's like he kind of, he doesn't just miraculously appear, I guess. He sort of walks up behind them here. But something prevented them from recognizing him. Or more literally, the text says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So either he's appearing in a different form, Jesus looks different and that's why they don't recognize him. Or maybe there's some sort of supernatural blindness and the text seems to hint that that might be the case, that God has supernaturally blinded the two disciples so that they don't recognize Jesus. And God has done that so that later on in the story, there's a certain moment when God can lift uh, can lift the blindness at a specific moment. He wants to reveal himself, Jesus does, in the breaking of the bread a bit later on. Verse 17, Jesus asks the disciples, what matters are you discussing as you walk along? Now, Jesus already knows the answer to this, but as he often does, he wants to start the conversation and he wants it to lead to a teaching opportunity. They stopped short, their faces downcast. So the disciples are genuinely sad and confused about what's going on in their lives at the moment. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas. Now, not sure exactly who this Cleopas is. Some have suggested there's a woman, according to John chapter 19, verse 25, one of the women at the foot of the cross is called Mary, the wife of Clopas. So if this Clopas is the same as this Cleopas, then that Mary and this Cleopas are married. But it's not entirely clear whether Clopas and Cleopas here are the same person. The other disciple isn't named, so we just have the name of one of them. So Cleopas says to Jesus, you must be the only person staying in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have been happening there these last few days. So lots of people were staying in Jerusalem for the Passover, and apparently by now everyone has heard what's been going on with Jesus. 
Verse 19, Jesus says, What things? And some here detect that maybe Jesus has a bit of a sense of humor, because of course he knows what's going on, but he says to them, What things? So Cleopas now goes on to summarize all of Jesus' life and everything that's been happening in the last few days. And here's what he says. All about Jesus of Nazareth, who proved he was a great prophet by the things he said and did in the sight of God and of the whole people, and how our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and had him crucified. Our own hope had been that he would be the one to set Israel free. And this is not all. Two whole days have gone by since it all happened, and some women from our group have astounded us. They went to the tomb in the early morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back to tell us they had seen a vision of angels who declared he was alive. Some of our friends went to the tomb and found everything exactly as the women had reported, but of him they saw nothing. So that's the summary they give Jesus. One particular thing to notice in this summary is when they say our own hope had been that he would be the one to set Israel free. So that the disciples are suspecting that Jesus is the Messiah, but in their view, as did many Jews at the time, they believed the Messiah would be a political leader who would overthrow the Romans. So when they say we thought he would be the one who would set Israel free, they're thinking that the Messiah would be a political ruler who would free the land of Israel. Now, the fact that they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah is the key to understanding what Jesus says next. And by the way, that's the reason why they're sad is because they had thought that Jesus was going to gloriously save Israel from the Romans. And because he didn't do that, he got killed instead, which they didn't expect. That's why they're so downcast. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, you foolish men. Now, that might seem to be quite harsh words, but they're mostly words of disappointment, as we'll see. He's disappointed that they didn't understand how the Messiah was going to suffer. So he says to them, you are so slow to believe the full message of the prophets. Was it not ordained that the Christ should suffer and so enter into his glory? Notice Jesus says, you don't believe the full message of the prophets. So they know some of the prophets, but they didn't understand the full message. So Jesus says to them, and this is important. He says that if they really knew their Old Testament, particularly the prophets, they would know that the Christ, or the Messiah, was required to suffer in order to become glorified. This still applies to Jews today. I think Jesus would say the same to Jewish people today, who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. He would say, if you knew your Old Testament, you would know that the Messiah is going to suffer. Verse 27, Luke says, Then starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he explained to them the passages throughout the scriptures that were about himself. So Jesus, on this long road to Emmaus, this probably takes a couple of hours, he goes through the entire Old Testament, explaining all of the passages which discuss the Christ. The goal here, Jesus is telling them this because he wants these two men, the two disciples, to see that actually it makes sense that the Messiah has to suffer. That's what he wants them to see, is that really the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to suffer. Now, that's one Bible study that I would love to be a part of. It's a Bible study that Jesus gives them. Jesus not only identifies the key Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, but apparently he also explains them to the two people here. So, unfortunately, we don't have this sermon of Jesus recorded. We don't know what passages he talks about here, but... 
probably a lot of the same passages that the apostles use later in the book of Acts to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. There's some from Genesis, some from Psalms, some from Isaiah. So this is a long Bible study, probably would have taken a couple of hours until they reach Emmaus. Now keep in mind, the two disciples, this whole time, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. There's just this guy giving them this amazing Bible study. Verse 28, when they drew near to the village to which they were going, he made as if to go on. So Jesus indicates that he's going to keep walking. Verse 29, but they pressed him to stay with them. So the disciples, the two men, have probably become quite enlightened by this man from his knowledge of the scriptures, and they want to stay with him. In fact, the Greek here suggests that they strongly insisted that he stay. They say it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So probably it's about 5pm or 6pm now. So he went in to stay with them. So Jesus agrees to stay with the two men, probably at their home in Emmaus. Verse 30. Now while he was with them at table, so they're having dinner, he took the bread and said the blessing, then he broke it and handed it to them. Now, this process was fairly normal. Bread was a normal part of the meal for Jews, and it's customary for someone, although usually it was the host, Jesus makes himself the host here, usually that person would bless and break the bread. There's nothing particularly unusual about that, except verse 31, their eyes were opened. Now, that's a reversal of what happened earlier. Remember, their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus earlier, but now their eyes are opened, so they do recognize Jesus. Apparently, there's something special about the way he breaks the bread or that he hands out the bread because as soon as he does it, they immediately recognize him. Probably what's going on here, it's not 100% clear, but probably Jesus does this in such a way that it's recalling the Eucharist. It makes them think about the Eucharist that he'd instituted three nights earlier on Holy Thursday. And there's also strong echoes here from the language of the feeding of the 5,000. If you go to Luke 9... um, Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000 uses very similar language about distributing the bread. But he had vanished from their sight. So as soon as they recognize him, Jesus miraculously disappears. One moment he's there, the next moment he's not there. And we see that with a lot of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. He just seems to appear and disappear at will. That's uh, something his new resurrected body gives him the ability to do. Verse 32, the two disciples say to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? So while he'd been explaining the scriptures, they had felt that there was something special about this man. Maybe when they say God, uh, their hearts were burning, maybe that was God's grace prompting them. Uh, But they couldn't quite put their finger on what was going on. But now they work it out. That was Jesus the whole time. So verse 33, they set out that instant and returned to Jerusalem. Now, it's quite dark at this point. We know it's evening. If they leave Emmaus at around 6.30pm, and if it's 18 miles, it's a few hour journey, so they might not get into Jerusalem until 9.30pm, 10pm, something like that. So they get there late at night, and they find the 11 assembled together. So they go to Jerusalem, and they're in a room somewhere in Jerusalem. It says 11, but in fact, there's only 10 apostles here, so because Thomas is not here, as we discover later. The 11 is just a general word that's used to describe the group of the apostles. So the 10 apostles are in here, plus some other 
companions, or other translations have it as those who are with them. So there's other disciples in the room with the apostles. Verse 34, they say, yes, it is true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Now, we have to be careful here with this verse, because if we just read Luke's account, it would make it seem like as soon as Cleopas and the other disciple get back from Emmaus, that all the apostles believe them. Uh, Because the verse just says, yes, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. But if we compare this with Mark chapter 16, in verse 12 to 13 of that chapter, we learn that the apostles don't actually believe the account of the Emmaus disciples. So they don't believe Cleopas. They don't think he's resurrected. And how can we reconcile these accounts? And this is why studying the text of Scripture is really important, because sometimes you'll hear the claim that there's contradictions in the resurrection account. The answer is, if you look at the Luke text really clearly, it says, Assemble together with their companions who said, Yes, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So in this passage here from Luke, it says that the other disciples, those who are also in the room, were the ones who did believe their story. These are the ones who are saying, yes, it is true, the Lord has risen. It's not the apostles themselves. So there's this sort of outer group in this room in Jerusalem as well. And the outer group probably includes people like the women, the women who have already seen the risen Jesus. So they're quite happy to accept the story of the Emmaus disciples. But the apostles themselves do not yet believe. Let's keep that in mind. Um, It's only later that night when Jesus appears to them in the room that they actually do believe. So this appearance where Jesus appears to Simon is not narrated in any of the Gospels, but it's the fourth appearance of Jesus. So uh, the third appearance would be uh, the one we're looking at here, which is the um, on the road to Emmaus. That's the third appearance. And then the fourth appearance is this one to to Peter. And we get a little more information about it from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5. He mentions this appearance. Why does Jesus appear to Peter first and not the whole apostles? Probably because Peter is the leader and he wants Peter to take up the leadership and to tell the other disciples that it's real, that Jesus has really resurrected. And that fulfills Jesus' command that he gave earlier in Luke chapter 22. Remember when he said to Peter, when you return, you must strengthen the others after turning back. And that's what Peter does here. He sees the Lord. He runs back to the other apostles and says it's real. And so by the time these two disciples get back from Emmaus, the apostles believe it's real. Verse 35, the disciples told their story of what had happened on the road and how they had recognized Jesus at the breaking of the bread. So they tell the 11 what they experience and notice They say clearly, we recognize Jesus at the breaking of the bread. So some have thought that the reason the two disciples recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread is because maybe he still has his holes in his hands and they see the holes when he lifts it up. I think that's pretty unlikely. I think the text would tell us if that was the case. It's much more likely that what they recognize, uh, the reason they recognize Jesus is because they sense that he's doing a Eucharistic celebration with them. And we'll talk more about this in tomorrow's episode because tomorrow's episode, we pick up at this very same verse for, um, yeah, in tomorrow's uh, gospel reading, it starts at verse 35. So we'll look then at what it means to say that they recognize Jesus at the breaking of the bread. 
So let's take a look at some catechism references. How does the Catholic Church understand this passage? How does it inform their teaching? Well, there's a whole heap. There's about 25 different catechism references to this passage from Luke chapter 24. And a lot of them are very similar to other ones we've looked at in recent days about the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. So we just want to look at some of the ones that are really striking in terms of the language they use, ones that really clearly refer to what goes on in this passage. So paragraph 1094, it says, On this, the harmony of the two testaments rests that the paschal catechesis of the Lord is built and then that of the apostles and the fathers of the church. This catechesis unveils what lay hidden under the letter of the Old Testament, the mystery of Christ. It is called typological because it reveals the newness of Christ on the basis of the figures or types which announce him in the deeds, words, and symbols of the first covenant. By this rereading in the spirit of truth, starting from Christ, the figures are unveiled. So here the Catholic Church teaches that in order to understand the Old Testament, we need to see it in the light of Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus says in this passage on the road to Emmaus. He explains to them how the Old Testament all points towards Christ. Paragraph 1347 is a discussion about how the Mass has changed, or rather hasn't changed, throughout the ages. It says, Is this not the same movement as the Paschal meal of the risen Jesus with his disciples? Walking with them, he explained the scriptures to them. Sitting with them at table, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. So, essentially, the church teaches here that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus first explained the scriptures to them, and then he did a Eucharistic meal with them, which is the same format of the Mass we have today. It's the format that Jesus gave us. Paragraph, there's some other references in here to the Eucharist as well, because of the breaking of the bread, and I'll include that in the show notes, and about Jesus' glorified body. And then we get to paragraph 643 which is about the appearances of Jesus, and there's quite a clear reference here to Luke chapter 24. It says, Given all these testimonies, Christ's resurrection cannot be interpreted as something outside the physical order, and it is impossible not to acknowledge it as a historical fact. It is clear from the facts that the disciples' faith was drastically put to the test by their master's passion and death on the cross, which he had foretold. The shock provoked by the passion was so great that at least some of the disciples did not at once believe in the news of the resurrection. For far from showing us a community seized by a mystical exhortation, the Gospels present us with disciples demoralized, looking sad and frightened. For they had not believed the holy women returning from the tomb and had regarded their words as an idle tale. When Jesus reveals himself to the eleven on Easter evening, he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So that's a summary of everything that takes place here on Easter Sunday. And notice, I think this is a really striking paragraph, what the Catholic Church teaches there. Right at the start of that paragraph, it says, it is impossible not to acknowledge the resurrection as a historical fact. We don't talk about that enough. That is the church's teaching. Paragraph 439 talks about the role of Messiah and common views about the Messiah at the time of Jesus. Paragraph 601 says, Citing a confession of faith that he himself received, St. Paul professes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In particular, Jesus' redemptive death fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. 
Indeed, Jesus himself explained the meaning of his life and death in the light of God's suffering servant. After his resurrection, he gave this interpretation of the scriptures to the disciples at Emmaus, and then to the apostles. Paragraph 572 is in the section about Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, so it's a commentary on the creed, and it says this, The church remains faithful to the interpretation of all the scriptures that Jesus gave both before and after his Passover. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So there you hear that quote from Luke chapter 24. And then the last one we'll look at today is paragraph 641, which is in the section again about the appearances after Jesus' resurrection. It says, Thus the women were the first messengers of Christ's resurrection for the apostles themselves. They were the next to whom Jesus appears. First, Peter, then the twelve. Peter had been called to strengthen the faith of his brothers and so sees the risen one before them. It is on the basis of his testimony that the community exclaims, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So remember here in Luke chapter 24 that we hear about this appearance of Jesus to Peter. And that's what gets narrated in paragraph 641 of the Catechism. So all of these post-resurrection appearances greatly inform the Catholic faith. And there's so many Catechism references because we need to understand what the resurrection means. And so the Catechism spends a lot of time trying to help Catholics understand what the significance of it is. And the things that Jesus says, like on the road to Emmaus. That's the end of today's podcast. I hope you learned something new please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. There's lots of amazing bonus resources available to you if you do consider becoming a financial sponsor of the podcast. There's a couple of bonus episodes that are already up and available for you. So please consider doing that and continue to share the podcast around. I would be very grateful. Thanks for listening and we'll pick it up from the same spot again in tomorrow's podcast.